Welcome back to the UWA Alumni Voices podcast. My name is Rob Blanford and I'm here today with Pamela Watson, who graduated from UWA with a Bachelor of Commerce with Honours in 1980. Pamela was a Commonwealth Scholar and completed an MBA at the University of Toronto. Pamela is a strategy and change management professional who has worked with some of the world's largest international consultancy firms. She later founded her own consulting practices in Ghana and Nigeria and social enterprise in Nigeria. She is also an author who has written about her solo cycling journey through 17 African countries in the 90s, which gave us her first book, Esprit de Batuta, Alone Across Africa on a Bicycle, and her thrilling entrepreneurial and diplomatic adventures in Nigeria in the 2000s. The subject of her new book, Gibbous Moon Over Lagos, Pursuing a Dream on Africa's Wild Side, and her ongoing work in Africa, usually from her London home. Pamela, welcome back to Perth and welcome to the Alumni Voices podcast. We're delighted to have you with us. Thank you very much, Rob. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's start at the beginning of your journey. Tell us about your memories of studying at UWA in the, in the late 70s. What were your aspirations at that time? And did you have life all planned out? UWA, I think, unleashed me. And what I mean by that is that it really allowed me to dive deeply into subjects that I cared about. I also discovered that I had a real passion for action and change and wanting to get stuff done. And this this was quite different to my secondary schooling where I'd felt stifled um, both by the quality of the teaching by having to do subjects that you know didn't included ones that I didn't particularly like and of course had a, a very rigid timetable so getting to UWA and it's it's freedom to be uh, as much of a SWAT or not, as you wanted, um, was, was, was for me uh, really, really quite empowering. And, and I just loved it. And I, I think I loved it more as the years went by because I ended up selecting the subjects that I really did care about. And, and when I did my honours degree, and was able to focus in on marketing and, and organisation behaviour. Um, that, that's when I really derived a lot of satisfaction from being able to delve deeply into problems and, and to uh, propose solutions. And, I, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, what I realised is that it was actually revealing to me um, my life path as a, as a consultant where I dig into problems and, 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 and solve them for clients. Those are some of the, the, the memories and the meaning that UWA had for me. In terms of my aspirations at the time, actually UWA was a, a, a second choice. I had grown up from a very young age with a very clear aspiration and that was to be a paleontologist in Africa. I wanted to be in the Rift Valley, digging up fossils of early human beings. I I wanted to be a a Richard Leakey. And unfortunately, UWA and universities in Australia, I, I researched it, didn't offer paleontology degrees at that time into the evolution of human beings. 
and I would have had to travel to London. And I was a bit daunted by that prospect. Plus, it was the mid-70s when I was leaving school and having to make career decisions. And I think perhaps um, what was going on then is is a little bit um, resonant with what is happening today in that in 1973 there had been an oil crisis which had led to the uh, you know, massive, for then, increase in the price of oil and huge inflation um, and Australia's economy had totally tanked. And whereas my brother and, and those just a few years older than me had gone through university protesting against the Vietnam War and, uh, you know, being very engaged on, on many issues, my generation of students was much more concerned with how we were going to make a living at the end of our degree and we were looking for things that were practical. So when I faced, did I go off to the UK and try and do an undergrad paleontology degree or, or should I do something practical like a business degree? My mother's voice, who said, oh, you can always get a job <laughs> with accounting, won out. And, and that's, that's really how it came to be. Um, so, you know, in terms of aspirations, um, it, it didn't quite fit what I'd intended. And it meant that I really entered university without my life planned out. It, it was very much, um, gosh, well, this, this, this should, you know, lead to some interesting things. And the passion for business grew over time. Sure, fantastic. How was UWS springboard for your career? So can you tell us about building your career as a graduate? What were your key learnings in, in that first period? And where did the move to London fit in? I was always very clear that I was leaving Perth. Um, that, that, that was certainly you know, part, of, part of my vision for myself was that I was going to I hoped Africa, and I'm really not sure where that hankering came from. But if not Africa, it was going to be over to the east or, or overseas. And when I was doing my honours degree, um, Jeffrey Stuter, is still a professor, professor of marketing in the business school, um, was quite keen that I, I'd do a PhD. But having now come to understand business, I, I, I must admit I, I had a bit of difficulty in thinking of business as something that I would do a doctorate in. I, I wanted to get out there and do business, make business. Um, but I did know that I, I wanted further education and I wanted to do an MBA. So before I left UWA, I applied for a number of scholarships to, to do MBAs overseas. But I ended up getting a number of job offers. And the job offer that I was most tempted to take was actually with the equivalent of Austrade, as it's called today. But it was a graduate program for people to become trade reps for the working with the Australian government. And that matched my international aspirations and the thought that, uh, you know, I, I, I could facilitate business. And although I got an offer, I've actually got to thank the, the, the officer who made the office offer for 
when I told him I had a bit of a dilemma about that or an alternative, he said, well, to be frank, I think you should take the alternative. And the reason he gave me was that what he could see in me was that I like to get things done. And he said, <laughs> I'm really pleased he was so honest. He said, I think that you would be stifled by all the bureaucracy inside the trade department and um, the private sector seems to be a place which would be a better fit for you. And so I couldn't really see it so well, but that bit of advice was very powerful. And I ended up taking the other offer, which which was very exciting, and that was uh, to become uh, part of the graduate intake into Unilever. And so that was really getting into the top end of marketing, which was a big passion of mine at the time. And I moved across across to Sydney to to join Unilever. I enjoyed it very much, but this work that I'd done applying for scholarships paid fruit and within six months of joining Unilever I had another dilemma which was that I had been awarded a Commonwealth scholarship to Canada to do my MBA at the University of Toronto and I had to decide did I stick with Unilever or do I go for furthering education and essentially it was that wanderlust that that temptation of trying something new and finding out what new opportunities that might lead to, uh, keeping my options open, that made made me choose accepting the scholarship and 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 moving off to to Canada. So that 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 was really how UWA got me um, on that trajectory, um, and I think some key learnings from that period were that I do like to get things done and I've got very little patience for politics and for people playing games. And where I I learned this best was probably through the Guild of Undergraduates. And I actually stood as an independent candidate for the Guild in 1979. I stood as an independent because... I'd already been at the university then three years and had seen the squabbling on the Guild and the focus of the Guild on issues that were the passion of the Australian Union of Students but were really nothing to do with the campus and the student issues. And so I stood on a platform of... um, delivering more benches <laughs> and more bins around the campus. And I deployed my marketing skills and, and made a contrast of me really responding to what were, were student issues. And, and the student body at that time was grumbling. I mean, it's a beautiful campus that we have at UWA, but really it wasn't being uh, invested in with, with facilities that just every day you needed. So um, I got elected. I think it surprised everybody, probably including me. But um, then the experience really started um, in that trying to get my, my campaign policies implemented proved an uphill battle. And what I, I, I found incredibly frustrating was that the Guild uh, was the playground of boys playing politics, and it was boys playing politics. 
and so it was divided between Labor and Liberal and they were testing out um, how to negotiate, how to compromise, I guess, how to, how to argue. Um, but they deployed a lot of you know, meeting tactics to, to block any, any resolution. And as an independent, it, it, it was really impossible to get my, my point of view across. But it was a huge learning that, A, I did not want to be involved in politics and, B, I really didn't, didn't see uh, politics is a vehicle for me for for getting the kinds of changes, so, social change that, that I was passionate about uh, to happen. So uh, in a way, I've got it to be grateful for <laughs> that it led, led me to uh, continue to embrace a, a, a private sector sector yeah. career. It's good the way that you, someone told you what what you should avoid, and then experience bore it out as well. So. Exactly. Yeah. No. It, it, you know, you're growing up as you go to to uh, university, and you're peeling back the onion to discover who you are. And exactly. So that's that's a, why we do it, isn't it? As well. So. Yeah, it is why we do it. Yeah. Yeah. So London. How did London happen? Well, that was much further down the track, because I went away from Sydney. I travelled yeah. to Canada. And then because I'd had this hankering from Africa and basically doing a business degree didn't seem to fit. It, like, you know, it, it, it was the early 80s. The Cold War was still uh, on and many African countries were either aligned with the West, but that meant that they often had dictators who were bought by the West but really hadn't delivered any kind of um, you know, functioning economy for, for their people, or they were aligned uh, with communist countries and Marxist countries like North Korea, and they were really closed down and, and you know, there were empty shelves and just nothing. So, so uh, you know, I could see that a business, a business person <laughs> in Africa didn't, didn't make a good marriage. So I decided that before I, I used my MBA and became serious, I should take my gap year, which I hadn't done any travelling uh, during my UWA time. And I, um, I went down the Nile. So I, I went from Alexandria um, backpacking um, on boats, on trucks, on trains, any means I could to get to Dar es Salaam. And I loved it. But then I returned to Melbourne and I actually there started working for the first time as a, a, a strategy consultant. So my MBA had led me away from marketing into, into corporate strategy and I joined what is now the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, and I'd, I'd been three years in, in Melbourne when uh, a collision of circumstances meant that I started looking for for something else and those things were well you know I'd, I'd always wanted to to be out of Australia that, that that you know it was just part of who I was but secondly misogyny in Melbourne or misogyny in in, in eastern and business Australia New Zealand where I was working uh, was dreadful in in the mid-80s that I um, I never encountered another professional woman in a client firm I never encountered a another professional female consultant in, in the three years that I, I was working in Australia. And uh, it, it, it was very challenging. Um, so that led me to look for, for different pastures. 
times were different. <laughs> there was no internet. What I did was that I joined associations in uh, development because I was always interested in development. And I also networked with people and wrote letters, bought myself a round-the-world air ticket, took my annual leave and set off on a round-the-world trip with uh, attending meetings of the Society for International Development in order to network and see how I could take my career into development, uh, but also with, with other consultancy practices. And I nearly ended up in Papua New Guinea through that process, um, but actually they withdrew the offer when they decided that a single woman shouldn't live in Port Moresby alone. Those were the times. And instead I took an offer with what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers in London where the temptation there was that they wanted access to what was then quite rare um, knowledge about strategy, the, the frameworks of strategy and the approaches to doing corporate strategy. Um, so I, I was to be deployed to their their new strategy consulting unit. But what they saw was that I could use those in privatisation work in Africa. And in the years that I'd been in Melbourne, the Cold War had ended. And what was happening was that America and capitalism, having essentially won the, that Cold War, was that money was being poured into into African countries, both to lead to their first democratisation um, process and to privatise the many, many companies that had been nationalised uh, during the communist and Marxist years. And so with PwC, I've joined, sort of part of me joined their economic development unit to 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 work on that so at last I was actually going to Africa with my professional experience so so London was definitely um, you know it was a base for doing uh, my using my competencies my professional competency but in Africa so so it was a great a great time you know, I really felt that 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 was going to be terrific so Lon London was really a portal for you in a way it was a portal um, and, you know, it is much closer to Africa and there's much greater awareness, not just of the bits of Africa that are closer to Europe, but the entire common continent, I think, is much better understood. There's still stereotypes, but it, it's, it's better understood uh, than, it, than it is in Australia. So, Pamela, tell us about the decision to make this what I can only describe as an epic cycling journey across Africa. How, how did that decision come about in 92? Um, and, and really, what was, tell us about what your trigger was to leave London and start such a huge adventure. Was, was there a sense of needing to escape the rat race or was it a decision to celebrate life, embrace new challenges and, and, and really pursue that dream, that development dream? Well, I've just told you about how uh, uplifting it was to go to London with that sense that finally the different parts of me were going to be together and, and I could, you know, really pursue, uh, you know, a, a dream. Well, it didn't work out um, the way I thought. 
what happened was that so so essentially in answer to your question there was a sense of unease and and that unease started within the first three years that i was i was in london and working with pwc i was deployed on privatization assignments to madagascar where i had to do the assignment in french with to kenya uh, and, and tanzania um, but it was the Madagascan assignment, which which was the longest and the uh, most interesting. But what I learned was that the funding agencies were really interested in ticking the box that they had delivered privatisation, while the recipient governments were interested in getting access to the loans that were promised if that box were ticked. So my team and I, who arrived in Madagascar, all of us fairly starry-eyed, you know, thinking that we were delivering um, what were really dilapidated parastatals, many of them not functioning at all. But, you know, they had land or they had potential and we wanted to deliver them into the private sector so they could receive investment, so that they could create employment, that they could earn, um, you know, profits and dividends for, for their society. That was all irrelevant, that they just wanted us to, to do it. And what I discovered was that my colleagues who were working in economic development had very long time frames. They were they were the sorts of people for whom they felt that little by little, you know, over their 20, 30 year career lifespan, that they hoped that they were chipping away and would see some change. And it was an eye opener to me that 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 just didn't suit me. Um, you know, it was another confirmation that I'm a private sector person. That you know, two to five years is long to me. I, I want to see change. And I just felt that there was a game being played with these countries. Um, and I realised that development work um, in, in the mode of being privatisation work uh, wasn't for me. So, so I actually, I, I left PwC and I went back to mainstream strategy consulting. I figured, well, if it wasn't working doing this development work in Africa, let me return to, you know, doing, uh, working with very large companies, uh, you know, multinationals and and looking at their very interesting and complex strategy problems but at the end of three years at doing that there was another kind of sense of unease developed because um you know I was working very very hard it was the early 90s and whilst young people today might complain that it's difficult to to um pay for accommodation Back in the early 90s, uh, there was very high inflation and I had a mortgage and the mortgage was, um, my interest rate was over 20%. And so I was probably earning, you know, particularly in today's terms, I was earning more than I've ever earned any time in my career. And I was saving absolutely nothing because every penny of every paycheck had to go to servicing the loan and that was combined then with the fact that I was working very very hard you know real overnighters weekends had no social life and so you know when I did look up uh, I'd be thinking well what, what happened to that that younger woman who backpacked down the Nile and who was free 
Um, why, why am I doing this to myself? Isn't there more to life? So there definitely was an element that there was a, a kind of an early midlife crisis. I was only in my early 30s, but, but um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I wanted, wanted some new adventure. And, um, in fact, I took myself away from my work for very few things. But one, one thing that I did do was to, on Monday nights, go to the Royal Geographical Society, an old Victorian building in central London, and to attend the Monday night lecture when adventurers would talk about faraway places. And there was a particularly rainy Monday night. I nearly didn't go. It was February. It was quite cold, I remember. And I went and there was a a guy about my age and he was electrifying. He was showing slides of his bicycle journey in South America. And it was like a light bulb went on. I I just thought, yes, that's that's what I can do. I I can cycle through Africa. And so this kind of unease that had been brewing got married with an idea. And while I couldn't really explain to people, even to this day, I, 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 can't, I can't explain why that idea just, you know, was the right one for me. I just knew I had to do it. And uh, within months I'd quit my job and I spent six months in London planning for that journey. That's amazing. It's almost you, you really did receive a message from the universe. So. The only problem was that I hadn't actually done any cycle touring at that time. <laughs> I cycled around London, always was a cycle commuter, but I, I'd, I'd never done any touring. And uh, I, I ended up having a practice ride in the south of France and cycling in Provence and staying in campgrounds and in the evenings having a little bit of wine and some cheese, I thought, oh, I like cycle touring. I, I can do this. But of course, I hadn't quite counted on what it was going to be like in Africa. Yeah, a completely different experience to the south of France. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Pamela, that, that journey caused two enormous changes in your life. You, you became an author and you wrote your first book, Esprit de Batuta, alone across Africa on a bicycle. And then you ended up moving to Nigeria for 10 years. So did you fall in love? Did you fall head over heels in love with Africa, um, with the romance of Africa, I suppose? Or was there a sense of needing to be there to achieve important work? It's definitely both. I think, you know, having told you my history, that I really started off wanting to be Richard Leakey in um, the Rift Valley, digging up fossils. Um, you know, and somehow ended up as a, as a strategy and change management consultant. Um, you know, there was always this this um, tension that that I could do one thing or I could, you know could do the other, but I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't be in Africa and be a, a consultant. Well, what happened with 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 my journey was that having finished, I came back to London, and immediately people said, um, "Have you changed?" And I couldn't see it. I said, well, no, you know, there weren't spots. (laughs) My shoulders were a bit broader, um, so I couldn't fit my business suits. Uh, But that that was, you know, I was definitely fitter. But but I I couldn't couldn't see the changes. Well, well, what happened was that 
within weeks of arriving back in London, I started making different choices about who I mixed with. I was mixing with adventurers rather than with my business colleagues. Um, I was spending my time, uh, you know, with them doing more casual things with my business colleagues that had always been about dinner and some, you know, smart restaurant. But, but you know, with my new new friends, we, we'd head off to the pub um, and we were plotting new, new, you know, adventures. And, and actually possibly at that stage I was thinking of, you know, maybe doing another great adventure. But, but a couple of things happened. One, one was that I ended up within six weeks after getting back to London, I was beaten up in road rage, badly injured. And that crashed me from the high of my life down, down into quite, some quite serious depression. And I ended up retreating to Australia at that time for, for a couple of years. The second thing that had happened which is it's, um, resonant again with today, was that on my bicycle journey, I had cycled into Dar es Salaam, expecting there to be a bit of a flurry of media activity um, awaiting. And the reason for that was that I was uh, raising money for a charity, Womankind Worldwide, and I was... Uh, I had some companies that were, were supporting me. And at the beginning, both the charity and the companies thought, you know, I was daft and that I was going to die. In fact, they later admitted to me that they thought I was going to die. But as I got closer to Dar es Salaam, I think they saw mileage in, in some publicity, you know, that this woman had crossed Africa alone, you know, I'd taken 18 months to do it, but, you know, I was arriving. And so the phone contact that I did have up country, I was told there was going to be quite a media pack, international and local, and I should be prepared for it. Well, what happened was that on the night before I arrived into Dar es Salaam, the plane carrying the presidents of Burundi and Rwanda uh, landing in Kigali uh, was shot down and those presidents were killed. And this was the spark of the Rwandan genocide. They were flying in from Tanzania. And so the day that I cycled into Dar es Salaam was a day of mourning. It was quiet on the roads and there wasn't a single journalist to be seen because every journalist had immediately hopped on a, a plane to Kigali, not knowing what was going to happen. But, of course, we now know that that was the Rwandan genocide. Well, from that moment on, not, not one person was interested in a good news story out of Africa, a story that a woman by herself would be welcomed by villagers, that my, my security was assured by villagers across the continent. Instead, people wanted to hear the story of Africans killing each other. And it was immensely frustrating to me. So after, after the um, attack... Thoughts of doing other adventures went away. I retreated to Australia and that's when I decided to write a book that I, I needed to tell that good news story out of Africa. And so for the two years that, in, that I was in Australia, I, I, I wrote um, Esprit de Batuta, uh, Alone Across Africa on a Bicycle. And, and you know, that, that, that was how I became an author. It was, a, it was a bit of an accidental thing. But what it that time as well gave me was a chance to realise that I was no longer willing to give up my freedom 
anymore and and I really had felt trapped in the in in the career path that, that you know kept me working such long hours um particularly as there was a glass ceiling for women and it had been become apparent in my firm that that you know women women were not being promoted into partnership positions um that, that had been an, another issue along the way so I decided to take charge of my destiny well, and as fortune would have it, by this stage, it's the, the late 80s, uh, late 90s, sorry, you know, Africa was in a different place. And so I decided to take a punt. And after leaving Australia, I actually went to Ghana. And I lived in Ghana uh, for about six months and set up my uh, first consultancy practice in Accra. Um, and it was fantastic. It, you know, it was, it was so liberating to take control of my destiny to go back to Africa under my own steam and set up my practice there. But unfortunately, what I discovered was that the private sector is very small and really the main work was this privatisation work, which I wasn't that keen on, um, as well as I discovered that by setting myself up in Accra, many of the projects which were funded by overseas donors considered me as a local hire. And so I was no longer eligible for an expatriate salary, um, which didn't make good economic sense to me, that I, I was paying huge sums of money to support myself, uh, you know, as an expatriate in, in, in Accra, but could, could only earn a local salary. So, so in the end, that, that, um, that model didn't work and I needed to, to get a, a paying job. So I took, I took a contract and, and, and ended up you know, working for a couple of years. But I've drifted a bit, I think, from your question about, um, you know, did I fall head over heels in love with Africa or was there a sense of needing to be there to achieve something important? And um, I think that's probably the more important question I should, should answer. Essentially, you know, I'd had this love of Africa from all these travel experiences and aborted business experiences. But what I discovered was that whereas I um, am not a fan now of, of development interventions, they've, they've got their place, but they've also got lots of problems. What I saw was that private sector can make a huge difference and does make a huge difference in Africa. And it doesn't have to be multinationals or uh, foreign companies. Any company, as long as it's operating, you know, to achieve its objectives, is having a huge social impact through training people, employing people, developing people who then go on to do great things. They're a better university than any of the universities that are available on, on the ground um, in a place like, like Nigeria, for example. And secondly, what they're doing, there's so many needs, unfulfilled needs in Africa that I discovered along the way that strategy is not really so deeply needed for a company to succeed in Africa. It's all about execution it's about being able to operate successfully in very challenging environment so for me I you know that sense when I joined PwC back in the 80s which was oh, I was going to be able to use my competencies and be in Africa in in, in going back to to Africa and, and 
firstly to Ghana and, and then, then later to, to Nigeria. Yes, it was a place that I knew I loved, but it was very much that I felt that by this stage and in particularly in the Nigerian market, I could, I could make a difference through my own firms and through uh, the social enterprise that, that I, I went on to, to create. And, and, and so, yeah, it was a combination of the two things, love, love and making a difference. So you've written that Africa doesn't need saving and you've specifically mentioned the fact that Africans are already doing it for themselves. Can you tell us more about what this means for you? And in your opinion, what can the West most meaningfully do for Africa? Should we get involved or should we leave Africa alone to do its thing in its own way? Having spent 10 years in Nigeria, that's, that's 10 years in enterprise Africa. Most Australians, many outsiders, have stereotypes about Africa, which is that Africa is either about animals and the wide open plains of the Serengeti, or it's about helpless or hopeless Africans who aren't able to organise things for themselves and, and, and need saving. And those, those cliches, I can tell you, are really wrong. That Africa has changed a great deal. I, I started, you know, I went down the Nile in, in 1981. So I've, I've been visiting Africa. I've been to uh, 31 countries in Africa over, over many years. And right now... Africans are moving from the villages to the cities in droves. Why are they doing that? It's because all the well-intended action that has been focused on wells in the villages, schools, getting girls educated, even improving some infrastructure, trying to do a bit of extension training in agriculture, microcredits. I mean, you know, the list is endless. Women and girls still, they might have a well to go to or even a borehole for their water, but they've still got to fill it up in a bucket and carry it on their head back to their hut, which is usually up the hill. They might have a bicycle now, which they didn't when I cycled across Africa in the early 90s, but instead they will have three buckets dangling off the handlebars and sitting on the seat of the bike so that they can push it up. So there's still beasts of burden in the villages and their life expectancy, the maternal um, death rates are, are terrible. There just really isn't the, the health available out there. So Africans are not silly. They've got mobile phones. They've got access to television. They know that there is a better life available and they're seeing cities as the place to go to with their hopes for a better life. In Lagos, a city of 20 million now, 10 million when I lived there. When I lived there, we talked about busloads of Africans arriving into Lagos every day. And now, well, not right now um, because of, of the coronavirus, but, but, but right now we talk of 10,000 a day arriving into Lagos. So people arriving with, with big hopes and those hopes, they need to get jobs, they need to get houses, they need to um, get have access to schools for their children, and and they need opportunities to build build businesses. 
And this is happening throughout Africa, that there's big cities that many Australians won't even be aware of, many won't be aware of Lagos. Um, Kinshasa is, is another huge hub that, that Africans are, are, are rushing to. to. And, and a lot more good can be done through helping to create the environment so that Africans themselves can, can create businesses and create jobs or through investing and building businesses that are creating those jobs and, and making those positive impacts. And unfortunately, the aid industry, particularly the international aid industry and, and the international donor agencies, which are associated with it, in my view and in my experience, are not strong agents for change. They've been around so long and haven't actually delivered the results that they're formed to do that now they become part of the problem because the people who have jobs and even companies um, set up to be able to serve that industry want it to continue that way. And they're also very slow to recognise the shift that's happened in Africa. So even to this day, people are still you know, thinking about village Africa. Um, how many people actually realise that Lagos is where Africa's future is being made? Not many. Um, and, and, you know, the aid industry will send out messages which are perpetuating um, the image of problems and helplessness so that they will... Um, attract donations to continue their their work now yeah it's not I'm, I hasten to add I'm not saying that all their work is wrong it's just that when you get a gathering of well-educated Africans who get jobs who get trained who then leave and start businesses you've got a virtuous cycle there which is really um, a hub for change and much faster change than anything that, that the aid industry has been able to deliver over the past 40 years. So I'm hugely passionate and pro the private sector, African-led private sector, really delivering um, the, the, the changes that, that Africans are crying out for. So Pamela, you had an amazing opportunity to create change because between 2006 and 2009, you actually became Australia's honorary consul to Lagos. Uh, tell us how that appointment came about. And of all the outcomes you achieved during that time, what are you most proud of? Australia, I mean, it's, it's quite funny because, you know, I, I told you the story of having been offered a job with the equivalent of Austrade. Um, and now Austrade is part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and I ended up being the honorary consul to Lagos, so <laughs> full circle. <laughs> but, yes, I, um, I became Australia's honorary consul to Lagos and the 18 states, southern states of the Federation of Nigeria because the capital of Nigeria moved to Abuja in the centre of the country and the consulates were ordered to move to Abuja. And this happened in early, the early 2000s. But, of course, it took some time for it to be um, realised. So the Australian High Commission, which had been in Lagos, moved to Abuja. And they decided that rather than opening a Deputy High Commission in, in Lagos, instead they would appoint an honorary consul. 
So they were looking for an Australian who could be the representative. You know, I, I had already been in Lagos by then since 1999. So, so you know, people, I knew people at the consulate and they knew me. They knew that I was running to businesses by that stage. I had my own own um, consulting practice and, and, and social enterprise. So that meant I had commitments to the country. I, I wasn't going to just leave, um, be transferred away. I wasn't somebody else's employee. And, and so, you know, they, they look for, for folk who've put down roots. And I had. Um, so, it was, you know, I was offered the role and it was very exciting. I, I, I was very proud to become the honorary consul. But I think I had, had visions that the role uh, would entail, you know, some benefits, perhaps access to the diplomatic bag or a, a diplomatic number plate so that I might be able to move more quickly around <laughs> the traffic jams of Lagos. Um, but I must say it, it, it didn't, didn't really... Um, deliver on on any of those fronts but what it did deliver on was some really interesting opportunities to to um, make a difference and the first of those was helping to bring together the Nigerian and Australian communities in Lagos um, and and those other states Um, because in the time since the High Commission had moved out of Buja, uh, people had lost contact with each other. And so that was really great. I really, I, w- I was quite proud of that, of, of bringing Australians and Nigerians together. And I was really lobbying hard um, to Canberra that there were lots of opportunities in Nigeria in education, you know, and in agriculture and mining and various industries. And it was through building some of these connections that I felt, you know, Australians were learning more about, about independent opportunities. So, so that, that, was, that was terrific. Expected part of my role came when I found my inbox on my emails was filled with emails from Australians who thought they were in a relationship with foreigners, some Nigerian, some, some other nationalities who they'd met in online dating agencies and they were contacting me because they were worried that their fiance had had an accident or um, was needing money and inevitably they'd already sent them money and now they weren't hearing from them and they were contacting me to see if I could help and this was heartbreaking because I knew that if those relationships had been built online then they were dealing with Nigerian fraudsters and that they had been defrauded out of whatever money they had already sent. And this was a different kind of fraud to the fraud of uh, tempting people to think they could make huge sums of money um, by just giving access you know, or spending a, a small amount of money, which is really paying on people's greed, that this particular scam was focused on, on people's loneliness and, and need for love. And I, I found that really, really hard to deal with, having to try and convince people, and they were really hard to convince that, that the person they thought they were in a relationship just simply didn't exist. Um, and and I, I spent 
again, quite a bit of time lobbying to Abuja and Canberra that more should be done to inform Australians generally about the frauds that, that were out there. And one of my greatest disappointments was that I really did not get a satisfactory response at all. Um, that I think the response that I got was that if people visited the DFAT website, they had a notice there about fraudsters and, and scams. <laughs> you know, who's going to visit the DFAT website when they think they're you know, going to an online dating agency and in a relationship? That was a tough part of the role. And then finally getting to your question about what am I most proud of, I think it's not only through being the honorary consul, um, but it's, it's you know, through, through my, my, my two businesses as well, that I was really um, training people, developing people. And, and uh, you know, to this day I, I get people who are coming up to me and, and telling me about what they got out of, you know, working with me. So that, that, that's, that's really, really rewarding. But the combination of those roles gave me an impact on an issue which was, I thought, really was, certainly was important to me. There's this beach community, a gadja, that was very dear to me, that I'd known the people since I arrived in Lagos, quite underprivileged Nigerian fishermen. And this beach community um, had, had land where we could build beach huts. And so part of their income was uh, from, from at the weekends going to the beach and, and staying in our beach huts. Well, there'd been a shipwreck and, and the beach was being eroded. And this went on for 10 years, the 10 years that I was there. The, um, the land was eroding, eroding. Well, people who don't have very much, they spend their savings buying buying a bag of cement and then they mould their own cement blocks and they start to build houses, one cement block at a time. And these half-built cement block houses are essentially their savings sitting there as they endeavour to complete their house. Well, what was happening in this village was that as the erosion ate away at the land is that these people's half-completed houses were falling into the ocean. The school fell into the ocean. Um, the soccer pitch fell into the ocean. The the wells, which again were um, cement, very expensive, uh, lined holes, they were exposed as, as the sand was eaten away and then they fell into the ocean. So as the years were going by, I used my position, which came through being honorary consul and being the MD of these, these companies, to um, and, and access that, that I had with, with leaders of the private sector to mobilise for action. And I was doing that in partnership with the landlord who, who uh, had lease of a lot of the land. He, he was focused on the government and I focused on the private sector. And what I'm really proud of is, is that um, I managed to get a consortium of companies to come together and they then took over the initiative. It was under the leadership of one particular oil company executive who felt that this was an issue that we just couldn't keep waiting on the government not to do anything. And there was a lot of arguing on whether it was a state government responsibility or a federal government responsibility. And basically the years were going by and people were losing their homes. And so um, in the end, the private sector put together... Um, a plan, a technical plan, 
and then put together a, a funding mechanism and it was the private sector who put the money together. Um, ended up having to work with the government to, to get the right permissions but it was the private sector who executed the removal of the wreck with the first wet season after the removal of the wreck. Instead of further erosion happening, the sand was stabilised and indeed by the dry season started coming back again so that at Agadja today the beach is quite wide and people are now able to build their homes in confidence that they're not going to fall into the sea. For me... That was a win and, and it was jolly hard work over a number of years and, and it was proof about really what positive impact the private sector, um, not only foreign private sector, including local private sector, you know, what, what, in, what positive impact the private sector can have um, for communities in, in Africa. Yeah, outcomes, real outcomes. Real outcomes, yeah. yeah. Not just dreams but outcomes. Yeah, exactly. Pamela, you've just published Gibbous Moon Over Lagos, Pursuing a Dream on Africa's Wild Side. It's a book thick with the atmosphere of Lagos, a place you describe both as turbulent and enticing. It's a book with equal measure of drama and poetry. What do you most want people to take away from the book? What will make you think, I've done my job here? I think I've actually got two audiences. And my, my main audience is people who are outside Africa and who perhaps are carrying impressions of Africa, which are those stereotypes of rural Africa, of people living in villages or of the plains of the Serengeti and the wild animals. And what they don't see is that modern Africa is actually about its cities and it's about young Africans who are working harder than anything. They're well-educated. They're determined um, to, to create businesses, to do well in jobs for themselves, but also for their communities. I don't think that, that Africa is understood at all. And yet it's an Africa that's really growing, that, that people are moving there from, from, from the villages. And, and so if people read my book and have their ideas changed to think of Africa as somewhere which is dynamic, um, which is enterprising, which rather than being pitiable is a place to partner with, then I think you know, I will be happy that, that I've started to shape, shape those people's views. Not that they will get all of it from my book, but, but just to start that process of, of people looking at Africa through a different prism. My second, my second audience is Nigerians, and that includes Nigerians in the diaspora, and, and here in Australia it would be Nigerian Australians as well, in that I don't think they're listened to when they talk about Nigeria. <laughs> as being that exciting place, people say, oh, yeah, you, you would say that. <laughs> um, whereas hopefully, because people say, oh, you know, Watson, she's an Australian, she's from UWA, and she's got that impression of UWA, they will then listen to the voices of Nigerians who have got a lot more um, 
uh, aspects of, of life in Nigeria that they, they can speak well about. And, and after all, they are the people who are really shifting and, and changing that place. And, and, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that when Nigerians read my book, they will see it not as a, 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 a story that's the Oyibo story, uh, you know, who's, come, who's, who's basically carrying a lot of perceptions about Nigeria and just creating a book that's, that's leveraging that. But actually they will see their own story in, in my story, um, filled with all the problems. It's not an easy ride. It's a challenging place, but filled with all the exhilaration of that ride. And I think that then if Nigerians see that my story is their story, then they will feel that I've opened the door for them, them to talk further. And, and that, that would be a great outcome. And in, indeed, I mean, one of the real pleasures that I had from having had one event hold during my, my book launch in Australia, um, the event at, at UWA, where I, I spoke to a, a, an audience that included um, African Australians, a young woman came up to me afterwards, a young Nigerian Australian, and and she said just that to me. She just said, "Thank you, that um, I've, I, I find it so difficult to get that message across that there's a different Africa out there." And and so um, you know, with your book and your story, I feel now I I can be more confident in you know speaking more loudly and, and getting getting that my my own story out there. So, yeah, that, that was really great. So I have a feeling that you're a person with a plan who is usually looking for the next exciting opportunity. So, A, am I right? And B, if so, what is next for Pamela Watson? Yes, you're right. I, 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 I always have a plan, but I always have a plan B as well. Um, <laughs> part of my problem is life, I think, is that I have too many ideas, great ideas. And so um, I've learned over the years that I need to stay open. And, 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 and if a doorway opens up, it might be not the one that I have really planned for, but I've, I've learned to grab it and, and run with it. So, so, so I'm still open. With, with, I think with the launch of the book, that's been a culmination of um, a lot of effort to, to um, get my story of being in Lagos out there. And certainly I want to continue to, to use my book to uh, get speaking engagements, get opportunities to influence and shape people's ideas about Lagos, Nigeria and Africa, this enterprising Africa. And, and so that's a large, a large chunk of, of, of what I want to do. But equally I've discovered that the combination of um, my first adventure, Esprit de Batuta, being alone across Africa on a bicycle, with my second adventure around business, um, that surprises people and it inspires people. And, and that, you know, it's been, been sort of a surprise to me, but it's, a, you know, that's, that's a very rewarding thing if you can inspire people to become imaginative about um, how they run their own lives and, and especially perhaps women, young women. Um, and so I'm, I'm given my story that I've related to you where I really found myself in my early 30s 
a bit disenchanted with the path that I had taken and wondering whether it was the right one. Um, and then going off on a complete tangent. But now with the benefit of the years, I can see how it's all woven back together and actually is all about me. Then I'm, I'm sort of hoping that by being able to talk about that, that rather than just inspiring young women in their 20s to take hold of their destiny, I would like to be inspiring uh, women 30 years, 40, 50 to, to um, perhaps say, well, you know, is there more uh, to life? You know, what, what happened to that person who had dreams of, of doing something? And, of course, I don't expect that others might have dreams of cycling across Africa. But whatever those dreams are, it would be, be wonderful if through, through speaking I'm, I might be able to, to inspire people to, to dare um, to step away from everything they've invested in and, and, and to have a go at something else. Uh, and certainly with my experience, I feel that the threads do come back together and it's incredibly um, uh, rewarding and, and, and enriching to, to yourself to, to have the courage to do that. Um, but, I, I, you know, the other aspect of my plan is that I want to be giving back and I feel that with all my travels and with all my adventures in Africa, I, I have taken away and gained more than I can possibly ever feel that I've given back to the communities where, where I've been. And I feel very attached to Africa and especially to Lagos. Um, and I do see these young Africans trying to, to start businesses and I know that the odds are stacked against them. And um, with my combination of experience as an entrepreneur um, in small, medium scale business, together with, with my strategy consulting background, I want to be able to, to help them to um, build their businesses more sustainably. And they, they can be businesses for profit or for social impact or, or for both. So still lots more to do. And um, we'll see, we'll see uh, the direction that I take. It's, it's a big adventure, always. Because of the current global health crisis, uh, these are really quite uncertain times for people. Um, so I wondered if you have a message to our young alumni community listening to this podcast who might be feeling anxious about their futures. Well... I guess there's a thread to everything that I've said, which is about um, being courageous to take advantage of opportunities. And I think the disruption that we're going through right now, while in the short term possibly very painful and creating anxiety, is also a chance to reflect on the direction that people have taken and also a chance to really work fast to grab the opportunities that are emerging. And there, there are, you know, everything is changing. Um, the, way, the way we're working is changing. The way we're going to travel is changing. And, and you know, with, with that change, there, there are opportunities. So people with imagination can, can grab at them. And I, th I think perhaps to illustrate what I mean is uh, I can tell the story of 
when I was first starting out on my bicycle ride, I was filled with trepidation. I've been terribly optimistic in London. And then when I actually got to Dakar and set off and there was traffic, <laughs> trucks whizzing by, my bike was heavy, sweat was pouring down my forehead. <laughs> the load was so tough on my, my legs. I, I, although I tried to get fit, I clearly wasn't strong enough. And, and the thought went through my head of, oh, my God, what have I done? And for the first five weeks, things just got worse. I, I, I was really anxious um, all the time because when I was cycling during the day, I would be wondering what those men standing by the side of the road who were staring at me with a machete, you know, what were their intentions? I, I could imagine all sorts of things. When I arrived in a village at night, you know, I wondered, can I trust these people? Um, so I, 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 I had all sorts of anxieties that I was creating. And it was tough. The, after I left Senegal and the Gambia, I was in the mountains of, of Guinea and the roads were unmade and they hadn't been made for maybe 30 years. And they were um, very rutted gravel, really with rivers of water having cut through them, gullies. And so trying to cycle was impossible. So for days I was pushing this heavy bike up into the mountains of the Futajalon and the Guinea Highlands. And I finally arrived out of, out of the, the, the countryside where there'd only been very tiny villages into, into a town. And I was looking forward to trying to find a little hotel where I could stay and rest up for a couple of days before continuing. And as I arrived, I got bitten by a dog. And an Alsatian came rushing out at me, grabbed my left leg behind the knee and took a huge chunk of flesh out. And fortunately, there were some Chinese doctors in town who didn't speak very much English, but they gave me uh, anti-rabies injections, as it turned out, for seven days in, in the aftermath. But they managed to say to me on their first visit, they said, um, oh, no cycling, no cycling for one, one. And I was thinking, one week, one week, oh, no, you know, um, what's going to happen to my timetable if I'm going to be off the road for, for a week? And they said, no, no, one month. And what they meant was that with a dog bite, it, its chance of getting infected is very high. They can't stitch it out on the road. It would definitely get infected. And until the whole wound was healed, I, I couldn't be cycling. And they were absolutely right. It took a month. I, mean, I, I did get um, quite... Um, bad infection along the way. But during that month of sitting in that, that remote town up in the Futajala with five weeks of hardship under my belt, I just thought, you know, I, I, this is too much. I, I think maybe I should be giving up. I should be turning right for Conakry and flying out of here. And, and it was a young woman in the bar of this little tiny hotel where I was staying and, and who came to me one evening and she said, oh, Pamela, she said, it was clearly a good spirit who made the dog bite you. A, a bad spirit must have been waiting further along the road and uh, it's the good spirit who's been helping you out. And then she followed up and she said, go ahead more slowly and things will go better. And... Well, I had a long time to reflect on her words, which I didn't think much of at the time. But actually, I embraced them and I did go ahead more slowly and things did get better. And 
I ended my journey eventually. But the point of that story in the current environment is that sense that out of, out of bad times comes good. And um, it's not only that you're waiting for the good to come beyond, but there can be messages in this time about slowing down, about thinking about what you're doing, about how you're doing it. Um, and so using this time productively to get, get ready for the next stage. So that would be my message to folk who are sitting at home feeling anxious right now. I don't know whether you've had the chance to think about this, but tell us what you think the UWA spirit means to you. And then also, do you still keep in touch with UWA friends nowadays? To me, um, the hallmark of, of UWA education and academic life and academic contribution is around its approach to research and problem solving, uh, demonstrated original thinking and imagination, uh, diligence, and um, yeah, a sort of a, a doggedness to get things done. And yeah, I have been trying to work out, you know, well, those hallmarks perhaps you can find in other places, but I think the the fact that these are hallmarks of UWA comes down to our, our campus and, and our place in the world. That, you know, we're really, really lucky to have such a beautiful campus. And we are in a really um, sensual and spacious part of the planet. I mean, we're really lucky to be in, in, in Perth. And I think that encourages us to look out to the world and to see problems but to be able to have that space and that quietness to perhaps be able to look at them differently. And, 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 and so for me, in pulling that together, the spirit of WA, UWA um, comes back to memories of working very hard, being immersed in whatever problem or subject that I was trying, trying, trying to uh, get on top of. And then coming out at lunchtime and sprawling on the grass and it would be winter sunshine, but it would warm you through to the bones and you could just gaze up through the pine trees and up into this solid blue sky beyond. And for me, that's where imagination can run free, uh, whether it's about ideas for solving problems or ideas for your own future. But, yeah, the UWA spirit for me is captured on that, that grass looking up at our great big blue sky. I keep in touch with UWA friends uh, through the UWA alumni in the UK and Europe, being based in London. Uh, that's a really great uh, alumni organisation that works very hard to bring us together, both socially for business, to meet uh, academics who are coming through town. Uh, the West Australian Trade Commissioner there is, is quite active um, in, in, you know, coming along to UWA events. So they've tended to be new friends that I've made over the years and it's a constantly changing, uh, um, you know, set of people uh, who, who, who are arriving into London. But uh, that, that's the principal way in which I, I keep in touch with, with UWA. 
Um, and so if anybody is in London, I'm definitely, or, or anywhere in Europe, I'd encourage them to reach out and, and to join that organisation. Fantastic. Okay, so Pamela, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and to hear more about your story. Um, I would love our listeners to also read your books. So um, how, how would you like, how can people buy your books, first of all? They're available right now in uh, online stores and in all bookstores, independents, as well as the chains. If you can't find it, it can be, they can be ordered in. So it's Gibbous Moon Over Lagos. Pursuing a Dream on Africa's Wild Side. And my first book is Frida Batuta, Alone Across Africa on a Bicycle. And both are published by Hardy Grant books. And uh, so they can also be, be uh, they can find a bookstore that stocks them through, through the Hardy Grant books uh, website. It's good to give people an opportunity to connect with you. Um, so what social media channels would you like people to follow you on? If people want to find out more, they can visit my website, which is PamelaWatson.com. Uh, all the links to my social media are there, as well as uh, there's, there's links to, to uh, uh, bookstores too. So, um, uh, and, and they can get in touch with me through my website too, which would be great. I'd love to hear from people. Okay, fantastic. Uh, once again, Pamela, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. Um, I hope the rest of your time in Perth is fruitful in some way, albeit un of an unexpected duration, I'm sure. Um, thank you, Rob. It's been, been an enjoyable chat and um, I look forward to hearing from some UWA graduates. Hi, I'm Ricky Nguyen from the UWA Alumni in Hong Kong. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs and high-fives, but we're still part of the global UWA community and have a role to play. The UWA Alumni community is committed to helping all of our students, staff and graduates through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation. Send a message of support, become a mentor, ambassador, or give pro bono advice, or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part and help the global UWA community. Thanks.